The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. On today's episode, Trident Room host Oleg Gorski sits down and has a conversation with Professor James Wirtz. Hello and welcome to the Trident Room podcast. My name is Luke Gorski and today I'm joined by Professor Wirtz. He is a National Security Affairs professor here at the Naval Postgraduate School and the author of a July Proceedings article entitled Unmanned Ships and the Future of Deterrence. Professor Wirtz, how are you today? Good. Great great to be here. Thanks. So before we kick off and discuss your article, uh, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, how you got here to MPS? Well, uh, you know, I was uh, uh, studied political science and psychology at the University of Delaware, got a master's degree there, and then I went off to Columbia for my uh, doctoral work. I spent a few years at Harvard as an Olin Fellow, uh, worked with Sam Huntington at the Center for International Affairs, and then uh, I had a, f- a series of a few one-year jobs before I came out to California for the first time, interviewed here, and thought it was a nice place to be, so I've been here for uh, you know, a few decades now, uh, but it's a great place. I really enjoy MPS, enjoy the students. Uh, it provides a lot of opportunities, not just for the students, but for the faculty. Yeah, I've loved my time here at MPS so far, and you cannot beat Monterey, California as a duty station. So let's uh, dive right into your article now. I think that uh, one of the key points that I think we should discuss first is one of the uh, some of the ideas you brought up in your article, which included the idea of sea control versus sea deterrence. Could you just kind of expand on that for the audience? Sure. Well, you know, the, the idea of sea control and sea denial and really command of the sea is really sort of the, the central concept. You know, that's an, that's an old idea, something that was in Mahan's writing, writings and Corbett's writings. And the idea of sea control is that if you have, you know, command of the sea, sea you know, command of the sea, uh, what you can do is you could exploit the oceans for your own purposes. You could uh, use it to transport resources. Uh, you could use it to project power ashore. And you could deny the, your opponent the ability to use that, uh, those waterways for their purposes. So if you're a maritime power and you can control the seas, you could harness resources on a global scale compared to what generally is thought of as, you know, a, as a continental opponent who could only uh, draw on resources on a continental scale. So the idea of command of the sea is that you actually use the world's waterways for your purposes, and you could deny that to your, your your opponent. So it so right off the bat, you could say, well, are the oceans a highway or a barrier? And you know, I always had to laugh. John Mersheimer, who's at University of Chicago, describes the world's ocean oceans as a barrier. Barrier, but the guy's you know he's obviously a landlubber, right? From Chicago. No, no, no. It's really a waterway. It's a highway. Mahan saw it as a highway. But it's it's that command of the sea that turns it from a highway. If you've got command, you could use it as a highway, or it's a barrier. If you have command of the sea, you could deny the opponent access to the, the ocean. So when you think about com- command of the sea. It's really not an offensive or defensive uh, situation. It's really a situation where you can control and utilize and you can deny the opponent the ability to do that. Robert Rubel, he was a dean at the War College, the Naval War College, about uh, 10 years ago wrote an article about the, the notion of command of the sea and sea denial. And this was 10 years ago. He said people had really forgot about this, that people hadn't used this idea. And the reason why is that really since the end of the Second World War, the U.S. has enjoyed a position of command of the sea for the most part. I mean, not to say that the Russians 
you know, weren't all, the, the Soviet Navy was a real problem. Uh, not to say that, you know, the casualties at sea have been taken over the years. It's just that for the most part, we really were able to exploit the oceans, the world's oceans for our own political and military purposes. And we could deny those, those, those that, that same benefit to the opponent. So we, we kind of took command of the sea for granted. But now, with the rise of uh, anti-axis and aerial denial capabilities, you can't take that for granted anymore. And that's right, and I think that's definitely something that we're starting to see become more and more important. Yeah, and I think that your article really uh, dives into uh, the way that the Navy can or should address some of those issues. And uh, as the title uh, of your article contends, Unmanned Ships and the Future of Deterrence, uh, unmanned systems are going to play a, a large role in that going forward. Yes, well, you know, what the, the problem here is that this was, this was actually an issue that Wayne Hughes identified many years ago in the, it was actually in the middle of the, at the end of the Cold War in the late 1980s when he wrote his fleet tactics book. He, he looked out at the world, looked at the naval situation and said what the U.S. Navy was kind of lacking in was sort of a, you know, a, a sea denial capability that we, we needed to bring more offensive firepower, ability to hold the opponent's fleet at risk. We needed more of that capability. And what he, the way he saw doing that was with small ships armed with missiles, right? Now, he wrote this just at the time when the Cold War was coming an end, so we don't have to deny the ocean to anybody because there's nobody else out there, right? We're the, really the only Navy out there. And Hughes's, the irony behind Hughes's life and life's work was that he knew as he, as he was writing this stuff down that it was becoming irrelevant in a way to the Navy's current position. And, and, you know, he died a few years ago just as what he was writing became relevant again. So, you know, the, 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 the lesson there is, is that if you stay in the business long enough, you see it all twice and there's a cycle that repeats. But that cycle is repeating because now you're facing opponents who are now going to d deny the United States command of the sea. We're now facing a situation where opponents are trying to de deny us access to the world world's oceans. So how are we going to fight our way back in there? And the idea here is that we're going to develop our own sea denial capabilities to engage their sea denial capabilities to try to wrest back uh, command of the sea or at least deny them the use of those parts of the ocean that we want to prevent them from using. Right. So I think one of the big things that you uh, discussed in your article, the term that you brought up was a, the idea of a bimodal Navy. Can you just dive into that a little bit for us? Yes, that that actually that's an action uh, that was one of uh, Hughes's ideas too. Uh, I think I link it to an article he wrote in two thousand seven. But the idea here is that you have two kind of four fleet structures out there. One is the uh, sea control navy, and that's pretty much the navy we have now, based around a carrier uh, battle group. Uh, that navy, that 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 those that force structure is sort of an all-purpose force structure. We could do you know air, sea, subsurface sorts of operations. And when that, that fleet structure is out there, you could deny, uh, you could control the world's oceans, you could exploit uh, that command of the sea using that force, right? You could project power, uh, you could sink uh, enemy combatants, uh, you can conduct amphibious operations. That force provides you that capability. Um, the problem is, is that you, you have to be careful putting that force too much into harm's, harm's way. Uh, so what, we, what, what we're looking at now is a force that maybe can go more into harm's way and uh, deny uh, the opponent's, uh, uh, you know, to go after directly the opponent's fleet. 
Yeah, I think that it's going to be a lot better, or at least in the U.S. Navy's calculations, it's going to be a lot better to send some unmanned systems into those anti-axis area denial envelopes rather than a an aircraft carrier or some other type of manned ship. Yes, and you know, the unmanned ship provides you uh, a lot of flexibility, right? So you could, for starters, you could use it uh, to conduct operations that are really risky. Uh, it's, you know, how long has it been since the U.S. Navy really put uh, ships at deliberate risk? And it, it's been a while. I mean, I think the classic example uh, of this, and my, my colleague Jeff Klein, professor in the OR department, we like to, we laugh about this all the time. During the Normandy lang landings, there was a destroyer captain, uh, and, you know, the, the destroyers, they had a group of destroyers that came in very close to the Normandy landings that were supposed to engage literally individual machine gun nests, right? So this was an old World War I destroyer they had. You know, they didn't risk, I think they didn't risk the best thing they had on it. But the, the gun crew was having a hard time hitting the, 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 the gun position. So the captain said, don't worry, I'll help you out. And he drove the, th he grounded it. He drove it up on the beach and said, is this helping? And they took out the, now think about that, that you had a CO who was willing to drive the ship aground to stabilize the platform to take the shot. You wouldn't see that today, right? We don't, we don't think about it that way. We don't operate that way. But if you had warships, if you had uh, platforms that you could deliberately risk, it would open up a whole range of operations that you can't do right now. You could take real risks. Uh, you know, what, what would that capability give you uh, to a commander at sea uh, to say, hey, we know we might lose this, but it's okay, you know, we'll, we'll, we have more of them, right? Uh, another thing about the unmanned vessels is that they should be, and we hope they'll be cheaper than a manned vessel. You've got to avoid gold plating the things, but if you can make them relatively inexpensive, you could build a lot of them. And with that, you begin to complicate the opponent's targeting problems, uh, you know, it's a lot more to target, a lot more to keep track of. Uh, you could also get a lot more ordnance in the field. Uh, one idea here is that we have to stop thinking about, uh, you know, naval matters and, and capabilities based on ships, but more based on weapons. So if these unmanned vehicles, platforms, allow you to get more weapons in theater, that's great, because we need more weapons in theater. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. There's always a lot of talk about how many VLS cells we can bring to a fight. Being able to distribute those cells, or those missiles, I suppose I should say, uh, away from some of the larger platforms and force the enemy to use more of their missiles, and then it gets into a missile stock equation, which always complicates the situation. And even if you have, even if you have, say, a round number of 100 VLS tubes on the thing, well, how many, how, how many weapons do you really have? You know, you've got defensive missiles on there, you got some offensive missiles, a couple different kinds, but we're really talking relatively small numbers. Uh, can you be generous when it comes time to fire, or do you have to withhold fire for make sure you have the right target? And then as soon as you fire, you become a pretty obvious bright spot on the enemy sensors. Well, that's, that's another issue that comes up, is that we, over the years, for purposes of peacetime economy, uh, and to make that sort of sea control navy that's all purpose, we put a lot of different capabilities on single ships where in reality you might want to disperse those things across different kinds of platforms. So if you lose one platform, you might lose one capability but not all capability. You know, like underwater, undersea capability, air-to-air -air capability, anti-ship capability, sensors. Well, you know, that's what I'm describing is sort of an Arleigh Burke destroyer 
not if you dis disperse that, uh, if you lose part of that, you don't lose all of it at once. Right. I think that's going to be really important in terms of ensuring survivability in any type of hot war going forward. And you think the sensor suites are the, you know, the sensors are the first things that are, are going to be targeted because you can see them. And if you look at the history there, uh, you know, uh, the, the history there, it's the air battles around uh, Okinawa are illustrative because it was the picket destroyers on radar duty that took the brunt of the kamikaze attacks because they were out there radiating, could be spotted. You know, they were the four deployed ones. So that's what took a lot of, a lot of hits. And if you could, that way you could denude the air defenses and you're more likely to penetrate the cap to get in at the carriers. So that's a, that's a lesson that, you know, that I'm sure the Navy's thinking about is that, gee, you know, we have to think about the sensors here. So not, not that they draw fire, but that we could get them away uh, from uh, the center of gravity in the fleet. Right. Yeah. In this case, basically decoupling some of the pieces of the weapon systems. Yeah. You know, that would be a good way to think about the use of unmanned vehicles to decouple. And the first thing you'd probably want to do is decouple the sensors to get some sensors farther away uh, from uh, the main platform. Uh, I think when we think about unmanned vehicles, there's a lot of concern about the legal aspects, the moral aspects of having autonomous systems out there. But you don't necessarily have to make them lethal to begin with. You could The sensor function you could use to do that right away. And, you know, who's, gonna, who's really going to complain about that? Right. It's a great first step. And really, it's going to be enable us to start to figure out uh, how we're going to employ these systems, what the infrastructure is behind it, and those type of things. Well, that's the other real issue here when you talk about unmanned systems this way. You know, what is, and you know, I've been asking this question a long time, what is the doctrine going to be? Do we have, how are we going to fight with these things, right? Do the drones protect the humans or the humans protect the drones? Uh, um, I mean, how are we going to, how does this all work together? Is it going to be uh, centrally controlled? Are they going to be how autonomous are they going to be? I mean, will they be autonomous in their movement, and but not in terms of their main operating systems, or will be completely autonomous? Uh, I don't. You know, I think the Navy's beginning to work on these things, but there's an awful lot of work that has to be done to think about how's the best way to integrate this. Sometimes I hear rumors or echoes or, you know, hints that, oh, yeah, we worked on that. We did some analysis here. We did some analysis there. So it's sort of going on. But I don't know if it's how centralized it really is. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. I think there's a lot of people that say, yeah, we've, we're working on that problem. We understand that problem. But then it doesn't get further discussed. Well, you know, and the other thing is when you think about a drone, it's being portrayed like the Sea Hunter, for example, had like a 96-day endurance, right? When you think, boy, that's pretty good. It is pretty good, 96 days. But that doesn't mean it, it can't be out there all the time. It's going to be out there some of the time. So where is it going to be when it's not at sea? Is it going to be on a, like a mothership? Is it going to be in an allied port? Because do you really want to sail the thing from San Diego or Honolulu or you know Guam? Where are you really coming from with this thing? Uh, so do you want it in an allied port, sort of forward deployed? Do you want it on a um, mothership? Uh, who's going to do the maintenance on it? Mm -hmm. You know, um, what's the maintenance cycle? Uh, what are the maintenance ratio ratios? If it's good for 96 days at sea, does that mean you need two of them to maintain continu continuous pr presence or three or four or five? I mean, that kind of analysis, all that needs to be done. Yeah, and I think that talking about for deployment, for yes, and I think about 
try one more time. Yes, and talking about forward deployment and whether that's forward basing or motherships, and likely in the case of any kind of hot war, I would guess motherships, uh, you know, one of the big considerations is that, you know, 50 knots across the, the Pacific Ocean uh, pretty much takes you out of the fight coming from San Diego or even Honolulu in some cases. Uh, you know what? There is a lot of times where uh, you begin to look at the distances involved in the Indo-Pacific, and boy, how are you going to have the right force in the right place at the right time is a real, I think it's a real issue. Uh, that means, talk about the intelligence perspective on this, is that you really need some uh, realistic warning, strategic warning of what's unfolding so you can, even, even if it's autonomous vehicles, even to get them in position is not going to be easy to do. So, yeah, no, I think all these issues have to be thought through, and we're not really, we're not really thinking them through in a systematic way. Small things like education, where, where, where are the officers going to come who are going to operate these things and understand them, understand the strategy behind it? You know, we don't have them either. They're not here yet. So, uh, and there's nothing in the Navy personnel system to produce people like this because there are no billets that are P-coded for that subspecialty because it doesn't exist. Right? There's no drone operator or drone commander or a drone commodore. Right, so it's great to go and start building them, but once they get to the fleet, it's figuring out how to use them. And talking about some of the organizational culture in the Navy now, you get something brand new and shiny, and there's maybe a little bit of fear, and, oh, I better not break this shiny new toy I've been given. Right, right. Well, that, that could happen, but you're right about that. Just, you know, I mean, there's this romantic image that we'll just give it to some a group of young people in the field, but like, no, we need analysis. Like, who who really should use it? How should it be used? What are we trying to do with it? All of this has to be thought through. You, you can, People can experiment with it, right? The details on how you really tactically operate this thing, it's going to be done by the, the uh, operators. It, the, you know, the, the fine-tuning is done by operators. But generally speaking, what are we going to do with it? What are we going to direct it at? That's got to be done as a pr process of integrating strategy with operations, with tactics, with a lot of analysis to think about, you know, uh, what are we going to use these things for? Small things like when can we use it? When would you actually deploy this? Uh, do you have it out there all the time? Do you have it out there some of the time? Uh, do you do it only in f as a matter of strategic force generation when you have warning? I mean, what is that signal to the opponent? Will the politicians be reluctant to activate the systems because it sends the wrong signal? All this stuff has to be thought through in advance, and it, it very, very little of it has been. Right, and kind of to drill down on the deterrence piece there, one of the things you talked about in your article is that, you know, having these unmanned systems to enable a distributed, survivable uh, offensive force, you can kind of create some sense of deterrence and potentially avoid conflict. You know, the nightmare scenario is that if, if your forward presence is so small, right, and takes so long to generate additional uh, force structure, uh, you know, out where it's going to do some good, if you're just out there with a couple of destroyers or, a, you know, a single surface action group or, a amp, you know, one ARG is out there, one amp, ESG is sort of out there, you know, it's just not a lot of capability. And that then that becomes sort of a tempting target, right? Minimal capability is, 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 it's not a lot to eliminate that target uh, and then say, well, now we're free to do what we want for a while. I mean, we're already saying it's going to be at least a couple of weeks, right, before anything significant, more significant is going to get out there. So do you want to, do you want, leaving any kind of force structure in a vulnerable position just sort of turns it into a 
tempting target, but a small force structure in a vulnerable position really makes it, you know, almost, it turns it more into a target than a deterrent because it's just, you know, can it defend itself? Can it really make a difference? Will it be in the right position? Uh, putting, um, having more force structure out there actually should bolster deterrence because it's not something that's easily taken out in one shot. Mm -hmm. That's what you really want to avoid. That just too many, too few aim points, and then it, it might tempt the opponent. So to maybe mirror some of the conversations we've been having in the international relations class that uh, you're teaching that I'm I'm in this quarter, uh, does having this you know survivable uh, system uh, that doesn't necessarily involve the cost of human life does that maybe increase the likelihood of conflict breaking out when politicians or policymakers or whatever other decision makers are involved in that uh, that chain there when they're making those calculations are they more likely to uh, be willing to engage in conflict as a result of not having to risk as many maybe none or as many humans let's try that one more time so getting into maybe some of the conversations in, that we've been having in the international relations class that you're teaching this quarter. Uh, as we look at how policymakers and you know people making decisions all up and down the chain of command and using these unmanned systems, does perhaps having an unmanned system in some ways potentially increase the chance of war breaking out uh, as a result of us not having to necessarily risk uh, the human capital that is usually associated with those types of missions. You know, there is there people have made that argument, and there are uh, there. It's a valid. I mean, I think it's a valid one. It could be that way. Uh, during the Trump administration, the Iranians shut down a couple of drones, and Trump, the Trump administration, didn't really respond that much. But they really didn't respond. They said, "Well, yeah, it's a drone, right?" I mean, they didn't say we're not going to go to war over a drone. That's probably true. Uh, but does that, is that, will that serve the cause of peace or make people more, you know, in the sense that we'll deter war with that or will it make them more risk acceptant and will provoke a war? You know, I don't know the answer to that. Um, will wars between drones break out and then humans might not be involved? It's a good question, too. But that's still pretty far in the future, that sort of scenario. And what... Um, what you find is that even though the war might start out with drones, it's probably going to involve humans pretty quick. Right, and especially when we're looking at the advanced and offensive capabilities that have been coming out. And, you know, if the enemy's just out there destroying your drones and you don't really care about it, well, they'll pretty quickly go and try and find the things that you do care about and target those. Or even, even just because you think you're shooting at a drone, well, that wasn't a drone, it was a ship with people on it. Or... Uh, you can't, you know, you shoot the drone shooting you. You're shooting at drones, and then all of a sudden the ship, you know, enters the scene. Well, you're just going to let them sit there, or you, you to take the first shot. You know, the, you know the uh, the analogy that comes to my mind is the Vincennes shootdown, mm -hmm. where you know the Vincennes was in a surface engagement with Iranian gunboats and uh, regrettably accidentally shot down an Iranian airliner. But if you think about it, here you're in a surface action, and the next thing you know, you think there's an air threat coming. Well, if you would have had the surface action against drones, and the next thing you see is a, an air threat coming, well, then you, you could see how these things happen. That just because uh, uh, you want to privilege not shooting at human beings, you don't want to shoot at human beings, in a, in a wartime scenario, 
it's going to be really hard to make a, a snap decision on what's actually manned and unmanned. So, yeah, I think uh, if it starts with drones, it won't stay with drones. Yeah. Especially if we're operating together with the drones. Right, and, you know, relatively close naval battles have different sense of distance scale than land battles do, so there's some differences that come into that as, in itself. You would think. But, you, you know, and the other thing, too, is that that's a good thing about thinking about how these drones will operate. A lot of times people think they'll be completely independent out there, which isn't true. You know, if you go out, if you really think about more of a flotilla than an independent actor, so if you're out there on a destroyer and you're in charge of the flotilla, uh, the drones might be over the horizon, but it's still going to be operating with you. I mean, the thing's going to be following whatever algorithm it's following, whatever control the network is. It's going to be either trail me or follow me or mimic me uh, or go in front of me uh, to uh, or, or stay behind, and I'll defend, you know, the sh- as, a, as maybe an offensive platform, I'll defend that. But, the, you know, the idea here is that we're going to operate in concert together so you don't necessarily have to put the, the drones on full auto. Mm-hmm. I mean, they can work in conjunction with you with some degree of control. Right. And I think that AI piece is going to be extremely important because as we start looking forward into you know future high-end war, it's going to be largely the electromagnetic spectrum is going to play a very key role in that, and it's going to be contested. So we cannot always rely on uh, you know, constant communications. They're going to be, we're either going to be unable to communicate or communi- communications will be intermittent. So having the ability for the drones to go out and make their own decisions without input, while that might be, you know, something that really gives a lot of people goosebumps, I think it's going to be a necessary piece of the integration of unmanned systems. You've got to go local at some point. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know what, I guess there was the newspaper report about the war game. Yeah. I think it was lost all network connectivity on day one. And it threw, threw us for a loop, through my understanding. Yeah, well, you know, there's more. Right now, when you see a lot of naval writing, writing about this, is that you've got to have sort of a localized precision strike complex. So, you know, the strike group, the battle group, whatever the, indi- whatever the even individual actor has got to be li- able to link into its own sort of, uh, you know, uh, strike complex so it can target you know identify target uh, and, and fire using organic assets because if you lose big connectivity to the big picture you're kind of on your own i guess some of the thinking is that that little strike group made up of the drones now gives you a independent you know precision guided strike complex that's very organic you give those assets back which points to maybe we really just a good place to start once again is with the ISR on the drones. Yeah, and I can see a lot of the surface warfare officers really, I think, being happy about the potential for, uh, you know, if you're a, uh, a DDG captain and you have a couple of drones under your command, you know, does that make you a Commodore? Because that sounds pretty good to most people, I think. Somebody once said to me, no, there's no captain who doesn't want to be a Commodore. Right, right. Well, I think, and why aren't they jumping on? But see, these are one of the questions. Some of the questions we have: Why isn't the Navy jumping on it? Why, why isn't the SWO community jumping on this? Because it really turns every CO now into commander of a flotilla. In the in the in the old days, when there used to be a lot of Navy ships, the captain was the commodore, right, of the flotilla. Mm-hmm. That when you actually had a Desron, it actually had 
I mean, 20 destroyers in it or 30 destroyers right. in it. It wasn't, today you look at Desron, there's like a cruiser someplace and there's a destroyer over the horizon and that, that's there's the Desron. I mean, where is it? Or am I imagining things? No, I think you're exactly right. It, at least in my experience, I think that, you know, even five would be a lot. Five would be a lot. Yeah, and the, the next piece and something that we haven't really discussed too much is the air wing side of this. And perhaps that's where the uh, bureaucratic entrenchment that we talk about in our IR class kind of starts to play a role in this. You know, the sad thing is that uh, the, the Navy had the XB-47, which was a really cool-looking drone, and they did, the, uh, they did the carrier tests of it about a decade ago. They had a couple of them, and it worked. From everything I've ever heard, it worked really, really well. Maybe that was the problem. Right, they were, the thing was actually wearing holes in the flight deck because every time it landed, it hit the exact same spot. I mean, it's pretty good, but you know, you would think, why doesn't the Navy have? Why doesn't every pilot, aviator in the Navy have a wingman that's the drone? Mm -hmm. Why don't we? Ha we can have that already. Why don't we have that already? Uh, why aren't we already flying with that sort of thing? And you know, the drone could be equipped to do those risky things that you don't really want to do. Or it could be the ISR platform, uh, or it could be the uh, extra missile carrier, the shooter that's you know uh, standing off and taking shots, and or going forward and taking the shot. So you know I don't know why that hasn't been more more exploited more quickly. And one of the things I mean I'm a Navy guy, so I don't want to talk too much for the Air Force, but with the idea of the expansion of the drone fleet in the Air Force, it they largely operated independently of the jets. So. Perhaps if we were able to couch this the same way to the pilots as we would to a surface warfare officer where, hey, you know, it's not that the drone is operating out independently. It's that you are a squadron commander in charge of a s section of drones. Yeah, you know, maybe that, you know, the war on terror with the use of drones, that's really sort of a, a, an odd set of circumstances. Because what you had is a very permissive environment, right? So that the, 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 the community, what it really enables the drones, the way they're, used in sort of a counter-terror weapon as a, you know, for, for targeted uh, attacks is that it's based, you know, the thing is not, it's not independent. It's flown remotely via a, a network, you know, and that network is, works in a permissive environment where the opponent doesn't have real good uh, jamming technology, right? So if you're in a denied area, you can't really fly that drone because it's going to be really, really hard to maintain the communications. The other thing is that the drone isn't carrying a lot of ordnance on it. So it's, it's got an ordnance package that's right-sized for a, the war on terror where I need to take out an SUV or a room in an apartment complex. But against a warship or an armored vehicle, you know, it just doesn't have a lot of firepower, right? right? So, it's, so the drone technology, the way it was employed in the war against terror, was sort of, was sort of a perfect, perfect storm of right technology, right kind of weaponry, right kind of threat environment that it could operate in. That's probably not the environment we'll see going forward. Mm -hmm. So that model is useful to a certain extent in a permissive environment against a certain kind of target, but not against the targets we're kind of talking about, where the environment won't be permissive, right? right. And the targets are going to be different. It's not going to be killing uh, somebody in SUV. It's going to be you know trying to hit a warship or maybe even a, a fixed mm -hmm. position that's fortified some sort of hard in some, some way. Right, so in that case, the baby step we took towards drones there is not necessarily the correct baby step to take uh, as we look to use drones in great power competition. 
Right, right. And for the for what what the what the Navy really needs. I mean, the Navy has the Navy can, has that kind of technology now, but to really have something that's a uh, capable weapons carrier or a capable uh, surveillance system uh, or even a capable decoy to fly along uh, as a wingman or something like that as a defensive system for a wingman as your wingman mm-hmm. that's not a bad idea and you would think as, as one one aviator once said at least I don't know where the wingman is right I mean, you know whoever it is will be doing what you tell it to do and it's the right job but uh, I don't know why. You know, it's those. These are good questions. Why this would really be uh, a lot of capability. It would enhance the effectiveness of the human operator in the human system. And why it's not being included is is a question that we often wonder. Well, right. Well, hopefully, conversations like this, articles like yours. I mean, they've been written for a while, but I think that it's really starting to come to the forefront here as we start to look at great power competition. The use and integration of drones is it's here, it's real, and if it comes to a hot war, it's going to be necessary. And you know, we need capability. We need capability now. You know, we can't wait twenty years uh, for another uh, for a new warship design, new kind of system. I mean, we need stuff now. It, it, we don't have twenty years to wait for this. We need it now. These systems are kind of available. Uh, I worry about it getting too gold-plated. Uh, that I think the first Sea Hunter cost twenty million. The se- second Sea Hunter cost forty million. That did not make me happy. Yeah, no, no, it's not the right way going. No, no, no. You're right. So I, you know, when these things, if it gets too much, if I, you know, if one hundred and ten foot drone warship is now we're up to one hundred million, that's probably real bad. That's we're not we're not heading in the right direction. So you want to keep prices down because we want to build a lot of them. Right, and we want to build a lot of them quickly. So maybe with a smaller, less expensive system, you're able to unlock a larger proportion of the shipbuilding or just general defense industrial base within the United States. That's that's the other, that's another good point. And you know, um, and if you don't have too much sunk cost into the individual unit, you might you could discard it, you could modify it. You know, you probably want to make these modular into a certain extent so that you could swap out weapon systems when the time comes. You know, may, we don't really have anything that's purpose-built for an unmanned drone in a surface-to-surface engagement, but that doesn't mean you won't have that in five years or ten years if you put your mind to it and say, you know, what kind of system do we really need? But, you know, with all of this, we need some more strategic thinking. You know, what is it, what is it we're going to be trying to do out there? Who are we going to be doing it against? Over what issue? In what body of water, right? And then you're going to want to say, uh, well, what what is uh, what are the what are the opponent's weaknesses we're going to really target? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you use this targeting the opponent's strengths, it might not help you out. What are their weaknesses? Are there weaknesses we could use this against? You've got to do some analysis to say what are we going to use this for, and then that might tell you how much do you need or how should it be deployed. Uh, so, you know. One thing that comes out of Hughes's work is the sides that do well in naval warfare are the ones who think the problem through in advance, yeah. right? If you get out there and, you know, if you're the CO and you turn to the XO and say, what are we going to do, that's real bad, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really, really bad. You want to know, uh, you, the plan's got to be in place. It's got to be tested. You've got to trust it. Uh, you've got to really think it through. It's the side that thinks it through. In advance is the side who usually prevails. You got to do it in advance, and that's why students are here in MPS, so we can start thinking these things through uh, in, in, in advance and preparing you to keep working on that in the future. 
yeah, and I think that in my two quarters or so at MPS here, that's definitely been the case. So, you know, the ability to have uh, conversations with interesting people like you or just have time to think about uh, some of these future problems. You know, when you're out on a ship or out at some different command, you're not necessarily thinking about how you're going to employ these drones or thinking about maintenance or that type of thing. You know, it's a te- you know the Navy is a float and a maintenance nightmare, right? No, it's all it's all very op- you got to make it's all very operational. It's all very here and now. Uh, it's hard to think about the big picture um, it, when you're out there, you know, stand and watch. And it's it and and being a SWO is grueling enough. Yeah, not a life for me. That's why I chose the Intel side. Intel well, there you go. You know, yeah, no, 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 yeah. You don't want. Uh, no, that's really tough, tough way to live. So, yeah, no, we you, you need some time to sit, sit and think about it in in, in advance. Uh, you know, you've got to, you got to think it through. Uh, it always bothers me. Well, in the interwar period, Trent Hone was the guy who wrote the book about learning in the Navy in the interwar period. Uh, it was published by U.S. Naval Institute Press, and you know, Navy doctrine for. Uh, they were talking about, he was talking about Navy doctrine for cruiser destroyer independent operations. They said, although t- trust the innovation and leadership and bravery of the officers involved, I'm like, oh boy, that doesn't sound like a plan, right? That is not a plan. You don't want that. You, you really want to think it through. Because it's really, sometimes it's not a matter of, no matter how brave you are or smart you are or how, inno- you know, how quick you can think on your feet, if you're not, if you're not set up for success, it's not going to work. Right, and the Navy has to be willing to sacrifice times for people like me or really every officer to come out and, and think about these things. It does take time. It takes time. Right, to do the reading or, you know, the Navy already has a global mission and there's gaps in presence uh, in places. So, but the Navy has to be willing to go and say, okay, well, this carrier strike group, instead of going on your traditional deployment, you're going to be going out and learning how to use these new systems. You would think there sh- I know there is a group dedicated for drone experimentation. It's based around, what, the Zumwalt, and they've got the two sea hunters. But that's it. Yeah. So, I mean, that's something, but you would think, wh- why don't we have a little more? I'm surprised they don't have more drones. I'm, th- I'm surprised they didn't build more sea hunters, even for experimentation, right? Um, you know, why not a dozen? That would have been a nice round number, and... To, to work with. Uh, luckily, they have two, but I mean, you know, a dozen, so you go out and actually operate with them and see, see work the kinks out. But you, you'd also think that the, the, the people should think through the problem and suggest ways to operate these things, not so it's some random walk by the guys who are operating it for a few, few weeks a year, a few months a year, you know? Right. Yeah, it's got to be continuous and reevaluated. And, right. and integrated, integrated, yeah. right. Uh, don't plan on using the thing uh, for more than 90 days. Don't plan for using it more than 30 days. Uh, what's the maintenance cycle? Where, you know, how much, how much range is it going to have when it sails out to meet you if it sails out from, you know, far away? All kinds of issues like that. Well, thank you so much for coming in and sitting down and having this conversation. It was an illuminating conversation, at least for me. Hey, it's great to have, great great to be here, great to talk about these things. And uh, if anybody hasn't read the article, it's Proceedings. That's right. It was in the July 2021 issue of Proceedings. The article was called The Unmanned Ships and the Future of Deterrence by Professor James Wirtz from here, the Navy Postgraduate School. 
And do you have anything else coming out, Professor? No. Nope. Oh, not well. You know, we have a piece. Uh, Jeff Klein, me, Auger, uh, uh, Klein's in the OR department. Auger is in the business school, in the uh, defense management school, uh, and uh, a former student, uh, Phil Pornell. We have a piece coming out in the Rusi Journal, the Royal Service Institute, on the maritime strategic imperative, which basically talks about why the Navy needs to go down the drone route. Well, there you go. Maybe a little bit of a deeper dive into these things that we talked about today. Well, thank you very much, sir. Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. This episode was recorded July 30th, 2021. For more information about today's guests and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroompodcast.